Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff Podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA-based motion picture executive, Jason Brubaker. Hey filmmakers, Jason Brubaker, and I'm super excited to be able to share with you part five of the Craig Spector series. Craig Spector is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written a ton of stuff for Hollywood. He's just been in and out of this business for a long time. And more importantly, he was the first guy working in the business that took time out of his busy schedule to help me avoid some all too common pitfalls. I also credit him with giving me an early philosophy And you've probably heard me talk about it in previous podcasts, but one of the philosophies I have is to never ask for permission to be successful. And that, frankly, came from Craig. He was one of the people that really put that in my head early on. And the other thing that Craig put in my head is, you know, don't wait around for everything to be perfect, uh, but rather, you know, use the resources you have to do what you can to make the projects that you can make right now. And I just am so grateful and, and to know Craig, and I'm so happy to be able to share his story. So here is part five of the Craig Spector series. You know, um, just look, we live in an age and an era that uh, it's never been, on the one hand, it's never been easier for a creative to realize your vision at a high level of quality and get it out into the world. You know, uh, it's never been easier than it is right now on that level. Hand in hand with that is it has never been harder to aggregate an audience enough to make a living doing that. Right. To rise above the noise. Rise above the noise and to also get paid enough because, yeah, they, everybody wants you, but nobody wants to pay for you. Everybody wants everything f- on spec, fully formed, you know, uh, and it's possible to, to fully form it. But, you know, at a certain point, when are you getting paid for this? You know, because we, we have, you know, and this gets into the other sort of overlap of different different mediums and same message of like the Napsterization of, of, uh, of content. You know, the very fact, the very fact that that creative output uh, became called content was just like a really odious development. Um, It's like it's more than content because it commoditized the whole process. You know, and we have people who will, you know, happily spend a thousand dollars for a phone. You know, they'll line up to pay a thousand dollars for a fucking smartphone, but then they expect everything that they experience on the smartphone to be free. It, it's it's interesting, you know, from that to see it through your lens, right? Because you got to experience the fun of limited distribution channels, which meant that if you got in there, the competition wasn't such that you got so washed out in the noise. And now you've had to evolve to kind of figure out this this new way of doing things um oh yeah and I've, I've evolved a lot in terms of things of like i'm i'm a big fan of indie at this point um and i i think that it you know it's entirely possible to do all of it in in different measure but uh i'm a big fan of indie and uh like i work with a uh an indie publisher at this point, uh, Crossroad Press out of North Carolina. And I've been working with them for about 10 years and they have become my, my first, my, my first go-to indie publisher of choice, you know, because 
uh, David Niall Wilson, who's the founder of the company, uh, uh, is and a writer, uh, a very talented writer of his own. Um, he has built a company that's the most author-friendly company I've ever seen. Um, and you know, the only uh, the only other one that w- came even close to it was the uh, the indie publishing company that I started in 1999 called Stealth Press to try to take advantage of dot-com version 1.0. I, I actually um, remember that. Um, you, you had started a publishing company, and your whole shtick, which I, I remember thinking it was a, a really good idea at the time. And keep in mind, this was at a time when nobody was doing this sort of thing. But you were going to get out of, if I remember it, you were going to get uh, slightly out-of-print books and, and bring them back into publication, and you'd work out some sort of like really, really mutually beneficial, totally fair deal between you and whoever the rights holders were. Well, you know, at that time, you know, it's like, uh, the way publishing was set up, um, because publishing is late 19th century, early 20th century publishing model, uh, was such that, uh, you know, there were so many middlemen involved, right. That, um, and so much money got scraped off that uh, when it reached a certain point of sales, it was no longer profitable for the original publisher to keep the book in print. And also, publishing had changed its game from when I had first stepped in uh, in 1985 uh, to 1999. Uh, it uh, Publishing had kind of imploded. And um, they were no longer interested in that old model of building rack space with an author. Of like you know one book and then another book and then another book and and gradually the author's name is is you know growing on the shelf and they became more like AM radio just like you know write a book publish a book throw it at the wall with almost no marketing whatsoever you know just they publish a book you'd write the book they'd publish it throw it at the walls see what sticks and if it didn't hit you know just drop it and throw another one at the wall you know and it's so I mean, that's such a parallel to how distribution's evolved in the motion picture mm-hmm. industry. But uh, the net result of it, you know, uh, what's what's the old thing? Uh, you know, it's kind of like a uh, an art of war, you know, a Sun Tzu art of war kind of thing of, uh, you know, every within every crisis is an opportunity. Right, right. <laughs> you know, um, and the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, they were pu- major publishers were putting, you know, known books from established writers were going out of print because it was no longer profitable to keep that book in print. But that meant that the publisher was walking away and leaving a lot of potential sales on the table. You know, there was a lot of profit that could be gleaned from that. Um, And especially if you scraped all the middlemen out of the equation and pretty much did direct publishing. You know, um, it's huge, yeah, and and it's huge. And then I went in and, and scoped it out further, and I figured out, uh, you know, basically a way that my my analogy to it was: we're providing Godiva chocolate for Hershey bar prices. Being able to take order fulfillment, deal with all the customer service issues to go with that, the warehousing—that's a huge deal. Oh yeah, and so we started a company. We went around. We we went around. Uh, I went back. You know, and I was going out to different, uh, I was going out to different uh, potential people to partner with, and I ended up partnering with an old friend from high school who was actually in a band with John Skip and I back in high school, um, who had uh, become he had started his own company, 
with another old firm, they'd gone public and, you know, and were eventually acquired and, and bought out and cashed out and they both became millionaires, you know? And so, you know, I'm talking with my, I'm talking with my old friend Roy one day and I told him I had this weird idea that I was thinking about doing just as like a little cottage industry to get my, um, my own stuff back in print. And he's, and I asked him what he thought. He's like, well, you know, uh, at, at the level you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't work, but if you scale it up, it does work, you know? And I'm like, well, I know a lot of writers who have books out of print, you know? And so we partnered up and formed stealth press. And then we went around, you know, the, uh, the York Lancaster area, um, and he had started a little company that was like a venture catalyst. I think they were calling themselves uh, venture catalyst, uh, where they would be, you know, the go between between an entrepreneur, which would be me, um, and investors, angel investors, to light up a company, take it public, and then you know the whole the whole game was to do that, and then you know get the the IPO and cash out. Right, that could have been you, uh, you know, being acquired by Amazon, which at the time exactly wasn't, wasn't exactly. Amazon, not the Amazon we know now. Yeah, yeah, and um, so we went around and did the little angel investor song and dance and got one point six million dollars in venture capital to light up the company. We got it up, got it running, and then the dot com bubble burst. Oh man! And it kind of it it kind of took it out. You know, and then it was that was also my first uh, my first real life crash course of business weasel one hundred and one, uh, <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah, where you see what these guys do, you know, um, see what business people do with something like that, you know, and see how they will fuck each other over for a profit for a stock share, you know, of a theoretical thing that isn't even you know earning, it doesn't even have stock that's worth anything yet. Well, that was the that was the, the the trend back then, right? With all these dot com companies, where you you didn't prove any value whatsoever except the concept. Yeah, it's the valuation, you know. And and unfortunately, you know, I can I can get this company to the point that it's going to go, you know, to the IPO, and I can build I can build the protections into the business model of the company to keep it from turning to shit. Um, and that was my mission, and I was partially successful. But then I got backdoored and, uh, you know, in power struggles, I was on the board of directors of my own company. I got kicked off the board of directors of my own company. I, it was like Stephen Jobs. <laughs> I got kicked off the I got kicked off the board of directors of my own company. Um, you know, while it was alive, uh, you know, it was a very, very author friendly company, you know, because we could be. And we could also do things that were shocking at the time. Like, you know, I don't know if most people realize that the standard issue is that authors get paid, they get royalty statements, you know, twice a year and they get paid off of that, you know? And so try, try working your job when you only get a check once every six months, if you get a check. Right. You know, so one of the things that we were able to offer was, you know, password protected access to your own private page on the website. And you could go in and you could see your, you could see how many books you were signing are selling in real time and, and you could get paid monthly. That's great. Which was unheard of at this point in, in my career, I've been in publishing for like 35 years. Um, and frankly, I don't even know if I, uh, I am interested in having a new book published by a major publisher anymore. Um, I don't need the validation and 
I don't know what they're really going to be doing for me, but I do know what they're going to be doing to me is they're going to be eating most I mean, of the profits. This continues to just be a parallel and, to distribution in the motion picture industry. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and you know why? You know why? Because they're all owned by the same corporate overlords. <laughs> the same corporate overlords own all of this shit. So it's not really a surprise that the nuts and bolts of the deals all start looking exactly the same because you know, it's uh, it's inevitable. So, you know, where you're at, or I should, I guess the question is, where are you now? What are you working on? And, and, um, uh, what am I doing now? Well, it's like, I've, you know, I've had some, some interesting life experiences. Uh, what was it? Uh, three years ago in, uh, 2016. Um, I was, uh, just going about my daily life and, and I had a, I had a, I thought I had a pinched nerve in my back, you know, I was having a lot of back pain. Um, and it just wouldn't go away. And I was going to the chiropractor and getting adjustments and they, they weren't really working where they had always worked before, you know? Um, and in the last session with the chiropractor, uh, you know, they had taken a fresh set of x-rays and I'm laying on the table and he's like, I think you may need, uh, some different kind of imaging. And I'm like, like what? You know, I'm laying there. I'm like, like what? And he's like, like an MRI. You know, and I'm like, where am I supposed to go for that? MRIs are us. I mean, what? You know, it's like, and then I realized it's like, uh, it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And then one day it was Memorial Day of uh, 2016. Uh, I woke up and I stood up and I fell over because my legs had stopped legging. My legs had ceased to work. And at this point, we are beyond self-medication. <laughs> you know, um, it's like something is really wrong here. So, you know, I I was on the floor of my bedroom and I kind of butt scooched over to the bed and I could reach my cell phone and I hit 911 and ambulance came, took me to ER and they did an emergency MRI and they did a complimentary, a complimentary emergency prostate exam. You know, and they came back and they're like, yeah, that pinched nerve in your back, that's actually a tumor on the T7 vertebrae of your spine. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I love that you threw in the prostate exam here for comedic, yeah, yeah. comedic relief. But, geez, dude, I'm on this edge of my feet. So, and, and it's like, thanks. And, and then they're like, oh, and by the way, your prostate's enlarged and your PSAs are 487. Oh, man. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the normal range? And they're like, one through five. And I'm like, oh. so that's bad, huh? And they're, they're like, basically 487 is you're still here. Um, and it turned out that there's like, okay, we've got to, you know, I was in ER for like 12 hours, 13 hours. And then I was medical transported uh, from Virg Centara, Virginia Beach to Centara, Norfolk General, because they have neurosurgery. Um, and I was... Uh, medical transported over there and put in the trauma ward where I spent the next nine days because I had to have emergency spinal surgery Ooh. because the tumor on my spine had punched its way through the bone of the vertebrae and wrapped its gnarly little tendrils around the moist, chewy center of my spinal cord. And it was just choking it off. And when it choked it by a factor of about 50%, my legs cut out because it, it just short circuited my, my personal electrical grid of my nervous system. Um, and just everything went haywire. And so I had to have emergency spinal surgery 
to remove the tumor off of my spine. And then, oh, by the way, you have stage four prostate cancer and metastasized to your bones. And I was like, really? That doesn't sound good. <laughs> it's like, and it's like, okay, uh, what do I do about that? You know, um, and it, you know, I didn't even have time to be scared. I didn't even have time to like, well, you know, I didn't have like, you know, they take a biopsy, send it to the lab and I have to wait 10 days and, you know, sit up late night wondering, well, what if it's just like, welcome to the fight. You're in it. This is what's going on. Man. So, so earlier when you said you don't panic, yeah, were you panicked? No, no. I was just like, well, that's not good. Now what do we do? Right. So you immediately go into action. What, what, what can we do I was here? just, I was just dropped head first into the fight. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, and that put me on this, uh, this kind of interesting road that I'm on because my particular flavor of cancer is cancer is a very, uh, a very uh, custom fit in an off the rack world. And no two cancers are quite exactly the same. Everybody's is different. And my particular flavor, uh, there's no cure. There's no remission to what I have. So I won't get any more cancer-free days, you know, unless and until they come up with a cure. Um, so I'll just be dancing with the, with the devil uh, for the rest of my days. And we got it. We got it under control. I mean, they put out the dumpster fire in my errant prostate. And, um, uh, you know, got the tumor off my spine. And then I immediately started, you know, radiation and chemotherapy. We re -radio radioactively firebombed my spine. And it turned out I had other spots where, you know, it was evangelizing and going condo. Uh, and there were some on my lower spine, some on my uh, sternum, some on my ribs, some on my clavicle, you know, and they nuked all those. And basically, bit by bit, um, we put out the dumpster fire that my prostate had started. Um, and I went on therapies. I, I, I started doing chemo, but then, you know, midway into the chemo sessions, I had a severe anaphylactic shock reaction. And it turned out that uh, my oncologist explained it. He's like, some people are allergic to peanuts and some people are allergic to shellfish. And you, my friend, are allergic to the cancer drug. And it's like, oh, okay. So, so what do you do? What do you do when you're allergic to the cancer Put drug? Put me on an alternative therapy, you know, uh, which I am on, which, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would, I just saw my oncologist yesterday. I'm like, well, you know, and I joke with him. I'm like, wow, this, uh, this stage four metastatic cancer thing, it's really kind of a full-time job, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> it's an all day, every day kind of thing, you know, of just, uh, fighting this fight and, and beating this thing back and keeping it back. Um, but in the meantime, you know, there is, uh, uh, the thing became for me automatically, even when they were loading me in the ambulance that day, um, the first thing I did is I set, I set all my Facebook settings to public. Um, and, you know, because I didn't want my wife, Tess, who's up in Canada, I didn't want her to feel alone, you know, and, um, and then it started becoming in my mind uh, a sort of a real life meta project art project called the art of not dying um and we kind of go from there and i started I, I was taking pictures i'm in the, i'm on the gurney in the ambulance and i'm taking pictures of everything as it's happening and i'm just sort of chronicling my experience as i'm going through all this um so what is, is that a coping mechanism at that point well it, it does it does help pass the time you know it's like 
And Pete's just laying in the in the in the bed, like seeing what's on TV in the hospital, or or sitting there uh, pissing and moaning about your mortality. It's a way of fighting back, you know. Um, and it is. It's like I'm at the end of the day. I'm a creative. I'm an artist, and uh, you know, I'm I'm turning it into art. So this is how I process my experience and my reality. And uh, you know, while my wife was busily, you know. Uh, getting down here from Canada and, and, you know, putting everything, parking everything up there, you know, uh, at work and, and everything and getting a plane ticket and coming down, you know, my sister was, uh, was in the room and I'm laying up in the trauma ward and she's like, well, do you want anything from the apartment? And I'm like, yeah, I want this. I want this. I want this. I want my guitar, you know? Um, and she brought me this, uh, this one acoustic guitar and I was, you know, I'd, I'd lay in bed and I'd, I'd be playing guitar, started writing music while I was in laying in the trauma ward and it would be like two o'clock in the morning in the trauma ward and everybody's just kind of like quiet. And I would just start writing, playing this song. And I realized it's like the nurses at the nurses station said they could hear me all the way over at the elevators, you know? And I'm like, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. I was like, no, no, we really like it. It's good. You know? <laughs> so I wrote, you know, something, uh, the aptly named hospital song, which was just my way of coping with it. And, and, and I literally did. It, when I did that, it lowered my blood pressure. You know, it, it calmed me down. It zenned me out. Um, and it just made it a little easier to get through. Um, and uh, the morning of the surgery at like four o'clock in the morning, you know, my wife is there and they're prepping me for the surgery. And I'm, I'm sitting there butt ass naked and they're, you know, wiping me down with these chemical wipes and everything, you know, and I'm like, and I reach over and I grab my guitar <laughs> And I'm playing, you know, butt ass naked, sitting on the hospital bed. And my wife takes a picture of me and I post it on fucking Facebook, you know, because uh, it's like, here we are. <laughs> Welcome to our show already in progress. You know, um, one of the things I did with that is when I got out of the hospital, um, like 10 days later, um, I got home and I started working on, uh, I started gearing up for like the fight. Um, and music was a big part of the fight for me because music has always been a big part of everything for me. Yeah. And I started, you know, I was, I had the one song that I had written in the hospital. I started writing more songs and basically over the arc of the next year, um, on, in June of 2017, I indie released an album, uh, called Craig Spector resurrection road that are all basically, you know, songs, songs from the resurrection road, you know, songs just articulating my journey, you know, the fighting stage four cancer, you know? Um, and I finished that album and we talk about indie stuff and it's like, I did it. I did it all myself, you know, uh, with the exception of there was one guy, young writer, horror fan from, from Ireland, you know, who contacted me over Facebook and he's a fan of my work but he's also a musician, right? You know, he's also a professional musician because as it turns out, there's a lot of writers who are musicians, you know, and a, and a lot of horror writers are rock musicians, go figure. And, um, he, um, he offered to master my album and I'm like, Oh, cool. <laughs> it's like, that sounds good. And so as I was doing tracks, you know, I, I got, um, I got, uh, a later model iMac, you know, like 23 inch iMac, and um, de and made it a dedicated music machine, you know. Um, and all I do on that is uh, write and record, and, and I use GarageBand. Um, 
and I just started, you know, working on it. I had, I had, you know, guitars and basses and, and, and mics and, you know, I play and I sing and I program. I started working with, uh, I have drum machines, but I started working with the, the virtual drummer in GarageBand. And I just put out the first album and I was done with that. Um, you know, and then I put it out. It went out there and it's, it's uh, professional. It's up and indie released and it's on CD baby and it's on Amazon and it's on iTunes and it's on like two or three dozen other, you know, digital music websites because I picked, you know, pro distribution, uh, on the thing. And it's, so it's, it's been, it's got pro distribution worldwide. Um, and I finished that one. So I kept, and I was by that point, I was in kind of in the rhythm of it and I kept writing material. And so, um, on what was it? So album one, uh, resurrection road came out, uh, in June, 2016 in July, 2017 on my 60th birthday, I released album number two, uh, which is called outposts. And it's just more tales from the resurrection road. And then I was really, I had the machine kind of up and running at that point, my own personal machine. And I just kept, you know, cranking out material. And in January of this year, I released album number three in the, it's the third album in the art of not dying cycle. And it's called kicking cans. And, when I, when we were talking earlier and I was saying there's never been, it's never been easier for a creative to do like amazing things, just, you know, all by yourself at home, you know? Um, yeah, this is, this is a golden age for that because you can, I can do an album that, uh, 20, 30 years ago, I'd have to go into a recording studio that had like a half million dollars worth of gear in it and spend thousands of dollars to achieve the same results. And then how am I going to get it distributed, you know, and go through that whole thing. And now it's basically like I can, you know, do the whole goddamn thing and then get it indie distributed worldwide. Oh man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you've been able to kind of take all of the stuff you're going through and, and create, you know, find some energy to create out of it. Oh my gosh. I mean, what an epic journey you've had, Craig. It's, it's, it's kind of trippy, you know, um, I, you know, it's like, uh, I, I should have a t-shirt that says I'd rather be skiing, but you know, when I got out of the hospital, <laughs> when I got out of the hospital, I had to teach myself how to walk again. You know, so, oh, you know, my first question to my neurosurgeon was, doc, am I going to walk out of this hospital? Cause I was rolled in, you know? And he's like, oh yeah, you'll walk, you know? And, and I did, I walked on my, I walked on my rickety two feet with a walker, you know, I walked out, but I had to teach myself how to walk again. Um, and as my nervous system has rewired itself, which it will do because as my doctors has explained, like your, your spine is an interesting thing. It, it really doesn't want anybody in there. It doesn't want doctors in there. It doesn't want tumors in there. It really just wants to be left alone. And if you just leave it alone, it'll just go about fixing itself. Wow. You know, and yeah, it does, you know? And so, I mean, at this point I can walk, I can't walk very far. I can't walk very long, but that's the thing I work on. You know, um, I just kind of push my, push my envelope to like, you know, get a little bit better, do a little bit more, you know? Um, and what else am I going to do? You know, uh, so you fight the fight, you know, um, you fight the fight and, and I have a very strict, uh, you know, circle slash hashtag no whining 
uh, edict on top of all of it. It's like because it's like yeah, this is kind of fucked. But um, I've I've got I've, a lot of other people have it so so much worse. You know, I have no room to bitch about anything. You know, um, this is just shit that happens. You know, and I also just in deciding to be public about it in a very sort of particular way of just being candid about what I'm going through. I mean, I've got, I've had a lot of people contact me um, privately and et cetera, and just thank me for, you know, just expressing what it is because they're going through it. They have a loved one who's going through it. And it's like, well, yeah, well, we're kind of all in this to, you know, ideally, I think we're kind of all in this to help each other wherever we can, you know? And one of the things that I'm sort of doing is, is uh, demonstrating that, you know, there is such a thing as life. Uh, people talk about life after cancer, and it's like, yeah, but I don't get an after cancer. So there's life during cancer. You know, you can you can fight this fight and have this disease and still have a life. Well, I mean, I'm yeah, I, Craig. That's yeah. It, I, I'm I'm inspired and also obviously a little little emotional just kind of hearing what you're saying here. Um, how does that, like, what's next for you? Like, how does that change your goals and, and your viewpoint? I mean, and I'll admit that I spend most of my days just grinding and trying to figure out the next thing and where's the deal and what's happening next. And I got to get done. And yeah. I'm so busy all the time that I, I couldn't even imagine. I don't think I'd have time to go through what you're going through. And I don't, I don't think you had time for it either. Yeah. Well, it really kind of shakes your tree a little bit. Um, it, it really causes, uh, it, it's cause for pause to really reevaluate what's important and what's really not, you know, and that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing to sort of theoretically apply to your belief system at any point in your life of like what really matters and what really doesn't. And so that's kind of, you know, where I am in my life at this point, you know, it's like, I'm working a different set of gears. There are things, you know, I, I can't operate at the same pace that I used to always operate at, but that's okay. You know, um, cause it's an interesting view from here, you know, um, and I just continue doing my work, you know, uh, the last couple of years I've, I've done three albums in three years. I'm, I'm really kind of putting a lot of time into music that I, I didn't have time to put in before cause I was too busy, you know, chasing the ring, you know, uh, yeah. in other things. And, you know, it's like, but I, and I always had it in the back of my head of like, wow, I really want to do that one day. And it's like, well, guess what? Here's, here's the one day, you know? Um, so I'm doing it and I've got three albums out and, and I'm pretty happy with the way they turned out and I'm working on the next one as we speak. Um, I was sitting there, one day, uh, what was it in late, late 2016 or thereabouts, I was just sitting out on the patio one day and I was reading something on Facebook, some argument because of course it was, and people were talking about, you know, you know, we, we get into a lot of, uh, contentiousness, you know, in social media and, and it's interesting that things change, like, you know, the idea of freedom of speech, you know, and, um, and I'm looking at it, you know, as an old school sort of like I was never a hippie because I was too young to be a hippie. But, you know, I was too young for Woodstock. My coming of age was Altamont, you know, when the Rolling Stones and the Hells Angels killed a guy. You know, that that was my coming of age. You know, so I, I, I came of age in the right. cynical 70s, you know, 
Um, I, I missed the, uh, the summer of love and just got, you know, the, the fall of hate, you know, um, and, <laughs> and, you know, I'm watching it now with this whole new, you know, sea change of things. And, and I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm old school, sort of hardcore about a lot of things, old school liberal and stuff. But when did, when did freedom of speech become like a bad thing? You know, um, and I see a lot of people nowadays who, when somebody talks about freedom of speech, you know, and people go, well, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences. And it's always seems to come across with a certain relish of like, yeah, go ahead. Say what you think. See what happens. You know, it's like, and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like whoa, what the fuck? You know, and it's like, I don't know what the hell is going on here, but this is crazy. You know, so I was sitting there and, and this guy was, um, who's, who is a, you know, unknown troublemaker, you know, in terms of these kind of things, you know, loves to foster these sort of arguments online and everything, you know, um, and I was watching this and I, and I commented, I'm like, dude, you should, you should do an anthology of this, you know, and, and no response and people are still arguing. I'm reading these posts. People are at each other's throats, you know, and then a couple of minutes later, I'm like, no, seriously, you should really do an anthology, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm still not getting anything from the guy. And then I posted, never mind, I'm doing it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, and I went out, you know, and I contacted, uh, I contacted David Wilson at, at uh, Crossroad Press. And I'm like, I got an idea for an original anthology called Freedom of Screech, which is, uh, you know, uh, freedom of speech themed dark fiction, uh, freedom of screech, freedom of speech themed fiction for the dark of heart. You know, and I went out to a number of, of, uh, and it was much like, you know, at the beginning when, when we did book of the dead way back in the day, you know, I went to a number of authors that I know and, you know, just contact them. Like, Hey, I'm doing this anthology. Would you like to be a part of it? You know, and probably two thirds of the people on my list said yes. You know? And so in, in fairly short order, you know, I had an idea for an anthology and I had a publisher for the anthology and I had a number, a roster of names uh, for the anthology, you know, and so uh, we're wrapping that up as we speak. I mean, there's only one more story that, that has to come in and, um, and it's a, it's a mixture of, of living legends and sadly no, no longer living legends. And then, you know, established professionals and then people you've never heard of before. There's, there's authors in here who there's authors who are just starting their rise, you know, in, in, the dark fiction realms and horror and stuff uh, who are just starting their own climb. And then there's a couple of people who are just, this is their first publication as far as I know. Um, How awesome is that, that you can open the door for, you know, the next generation of writers? You know, pay it forward, man. <laughs> pay, it, pay it back and pay it forward. I mean, there were people, uh, people who stepped in and helped me along the way. It's like, if, if you get to a point, it, it, you will get to a point in your career where you will be able to help other people uh, in some way, shape, or form. And if you don't, well, that's kind of on you. You know, it's like you gotta you gotta turn around and return the favor. You know? Yeah. Oh man, what a conversation, Craig. I, I really, really appreciate you. Like both everything you've done for me in the past and, and the inspiration you continue to provide me. And I'm sure, you know, everybody listening to this has, has just gotten a great perspective out of your story. Hey, look, man, I'm really proud of you because I remember when, uh, when your aunt Kim 
uh, was talking. And she's like, well, my, you know, my nephew, Jason, he's like uh, starting to do stuff with film and he wanted to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, tell him to give me a call. You know, it's like, and you and I had those conversations and you were just starting out and, you know, I could see what you're doing. I, I could see where you were just, you know, as green as new, new shoots of grass, you know, but um. at the same at the same time, it's like, wow, he's got a fire in his belly. You know, um, so in I remember in our early conversations, I was just, you know, I wanted to impress upon you the importance of being serious about what you were doing. You know, um, but I also thought what you were doing was like, wow, that's really cool. Go for it. <laughs> and and well, I, I always appreciated that. And you've gone out, you know, you've gone out and, you know, kind of carved carved your own place in the world, you know? Um and I think that that's a really cool thing. So I'm I'm proud of you, my friend. I, I, I love to see that kind of uh, I love to see that kind of success when it happens. You know. Well, I hope uh, you know. I hope both of us having this conversation have helped other people realize that they don't have to ask for permission to be successful. They can use the resources they have. And and what's the saying again that you saw at the Hard Rock Cafe? Just to bookend what we're talking about here, which I think is so important. There is no dress rehearsal. We are professionals. This is the big time. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast with Jason Brubaker. If you like our show and want to get more filmmaking info, make sure you check out filmmakingstuff.com and join us every week for new filmmaking tactics. Until next time, take action and make your movie now.